Hello and welcome to Behind the Scenes with Colin Edmonds, a podcast in which I talk about my life and career as a successful comedy writer in British television. I'll also talk about my interests and inspirations and chat with the occasional guest. If you enjoy the podcast, don't forget to share it and give us a five-star review. To find out more about me or to order any of my books, please check out my website. All the links are in the podcast notes. Also, if you've got any questions you'd like me to answer in a future episode, then go to the Contacts tab on steamspokenmirrors.com. And I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Taking us behind the scenes this week is someone who, for almost 30 years, has been one of the most senior figures in the production of television light entertainment. At the BBC, he produced The National Lottery Live, Children in Need and Top of the Pops. At ITV, he was for five years Carlton TV's Controller of Entertainment, followed by another five-year stint as Controller of Entertainment for ITV Studios. In that time, he executive produced most of ITV's top-rated quiz shows, chat shows and long-running series. He's worked with Nelson Mandela, Stephen Hawking and the Royal Family. He was the executive producer of the Soap Awards, the BAFTAs and the Brits. He also created Don't Try This at Home, Animals Do the Funniest Things and the award-winning Today with Des and Mel. And you'll notice I saved the best till last. I've worked with him for him and because of him. He is Mr Mark Wells. Welcome, Mark. Oh, thank you, Carl. What a lovely introduction. It kind of it goes on for reams, largely because you've done so much in a relatively, I would contend, short space of time in your capacity as, as one, a controller of one form or another. Well, three de- three decades, I guess. Thirty <laughs> yeah. years. It's not that short a time. I, really. well, I, I suppose. And uh, did it fly by, or did that incredible weight of responsibility on your shoulders drag? Uh, <laughs> well, um, I mean, it's gone very quickly. It's it's extraordinary to think I have been in telly for over thirty years. Really, I mean, it just seems literally like yesterday that I got my first, you know, researcher gig as a green. Green as grass researcher at London Weekend Television, which was nine. I can remember the date. It was the nineteenth of July, nineteen eighty-nine. Uh, the date my first contract started. Um, but it's um, it, it. I've been incredibly fortunate, and um, you know, had a, had an extraordinary time. Really, I want to talk about your time as a researcher in a minute, because it's not often, <laughs> in fact, never, that we've had an executive in television come on this particular podcast. So I'm going to stick with that for a little while. I'm going to Please, sweat that yes. essay, if I may. And I would contend that in your capacity as a controller of entertainment, that you actually change the shape of ITV scheduling, placing an entertainment weight on slots never before in the schedule that had a light entertainment feel. Before you... The daytime, the daytime shows. Well, yeah. And I would contend that big lunchtime pure entertainment shows like Today with Des and Mel. That lunchtime slot, 
it, it, it could be light, but never before was a primetime Saturday night production value brought to a lunchtime show, as as I say mm. with, with today with Des and Mill. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess that's true, really, looking back. I mean, I, I can't take... I think it's I think it's perhaps wrong for me to claim any credit at all for the scheduling of, of this because that was nothing to do with me. I, I worked solely on the production side. So, uh, I mean, the, the story of that really is when I was at Carlton as controller of entertainment, we pitched shows to the ITV network. We didn't have any guarantees of any output or anything. Um, contrary to what most people thought. And every show that we produced that made it onto the air, we had to pitch and fight for uh, alongside every other production company in the UK. Um, having said that, obviously, you know, it was my job to have a close relationship with those executives working at what was then called the Network Centre. And uh, I had a very good relationship with um, the controller of daytime, a guy called uh, Liam Hamilton, uh, who had I'd, I'd known from Granada Television, where we both previously worked, and today with Desmond was one of those shows where I'd, I'd been to see Liam pitch pitch something completely different, which he was kind of lukewarm about. And um, it was literally as I was leaving the room, I was in his doorway of his office on my way out, and I just said, "Have you have you seen that show in America, to, um, live with Regis and Kelly? Because uh, I think we could do something similar here." And he, yeah, I've seen that show. And I said, and I'll tell you who I think would be the perfect anchor host. I, th I think Des O'Connor. And there was a long pause. He said, that's really interesting. Go away and see if Des would be up for that. And, um, and uh, you know, cut a long story short, Des was up for it with Encast Mel. You were involved in that as well, Col. And, uh, mm. you know, you were, you were an essential part of that, of that process and, and that production. And, uh, yeah, it, it, it did very well. But, I mean, I, I think you, your point is is probably true we did work very very hard on the shows that we made for daytime to make them look like primetime shows to give them big production values where we could and it was tricky because we were working on you know daytime budgets which are significantly lower than primetime budgets hmm. but i've always maintained production values isn't necessarily about budget it's about the care and attention you lavish on a, on a show Mm. So, you know, we would take a lot of care over the look of the show, who was directing, how it was lit, things like the graphics and the music. And, and, and obviously, you know, the actual the meat and potatoes of the show, the content itself, you know, we would work very hard to hire producers and directors and writers that were used to working on big primetime shows, yourself included. The um, I, I just pause for a moment while I blush. <laughs> The same would apply, I think, to Bob Monkhouse hosting Wipeout, uh, yes. which landed itself in a lunchtime slot. And I, would, con right. yeah. I would contend that, that, that Bob and the production team up at Granada, Stroke ITV, lavished as much care and attention on Wipeout as they would a, a primetime Saturday night quiz show. That's right. I mean, that, that, was a, that predated me. Um, if you remember, Wipeout was produced by a company called Action Time, run mm. by um, Stephen Leahy and Trish Kinane. And um, Steve had persuaded the BBC to run Wipeout uh, at lunchtime. I think at that stage, without Bob attached to it, and then, and then I mean, Steve had a very good relationship with Bob and persuaded Bob to do it. And um, that was a kind of game changer, really, that you could put a massive star like Monkhouse into a daytime show. 
And my goodness, the audience was there for him right from show one and just grew and grew through the life of that show. I can't remember how many seasons it ran, but it was a phenomenally successful successful show, both for Action Time and for BBC One. But yes, once you demonstrated, I think, that a star like Monkhouse would appear in daytime and there was there was no kind of shame attached to that in any way from an artist's point of view. Uh, that Bob, Bob being in that show gave permission for other artists at that level to do the same. And so when we approached, you know, when we approached Des, for example, uh, to do Today with Des and Mel, it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't virgin territory. It, it, it was it was territory that Monkhouse had already prepared. When I was growing up before your time, that five o'clock slot on BBC and ITV, but particularly ITV, was Children's Hour. It was the five o'clock yes. club. It was Tuesday Rendezvous. But it was five o'clock on TV was Children's Hour, for sure. But you had the notion of plonking the Paul O'Grady show in that very slot, that five o'clock slot. Yeah, I think I can take credit for that one. <laughs> I don't think there had been entertainment at five o'clock before that. Um I mean, the genesis of that show, uh, and I'm so proud of the Paul O'Grady show, I think that was, looking back on it, I think that was just a fantastic show on so many levels. Um, but, and, and I would never have said this whilst Des O'Connor was still alive, but whilst, whilst we were doing Des and Mel, um, Des was off, I think he was on holiday for a week or, or may have been ill or something. Yeah, I think he was on holiday. Uh, yeah, but we had, um, and you'll remember this, we had Paul stand in for, for him. Mm. And we were kind of nervous about it because Paul had never really done daytime before. Very, very much a kind of primetime artist. And uh, and obviously used to working quite, you know, close to the edge in terms of content. Mm. Um, but we, 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 we put him in with, with Melanie at uh, one o'clock on, on Today with Des and Mel. And um, there was a kind of uptick in the ratings that week. Um, the viewers absolutely loved him in, in daytime. So I kind of noticed this and I remember I took uh, his manager and, and partner at the time, Brendan Murphy, out to out to lunch. And I just said, look, is there any way Paul might do a daytime, a daytime show? And he said, well, he absolutely loved standing in for, for Des. Um, I'm sure we could, we could look at something. What did you have in mind? And I'd, I'd almost always had in mind um, something like the Rosie O'Donnell show that was running at the time in America, uh, kind of a variety show in daytime, in truth, um, a sit-down variety show, really, with, with Paul kind of emceeing. And um, Paul and Brendan loved that idea. And then we talked about the slot, and I said, well, I think there is a wide open of, uh, opportunity at five o'clock. I think it's a dead time at the moment, and I mm. think it would... I think if I talk to the network about that, they would like it because it kind of it's the curtain raiser for the for the primetime schedule for the rest of the evening on the channel. And um, we approached Nigel Pickard, who was director of programs at ITV at the time. Nigel was kind of unsure. And I'll tell you what it was about. He wasn't sure Paul was warm enough for that slot. And I remember really clearly Diane Nelms, who was my co-executive producer, and I sat with Nigel in his office and we just said, Look, you've got to trust us here. Paul's absolutely right for this. It's going to work really well. And again, right from show one, boy, that show just worked. Uh, went on to win lots of um, awards. And we did very, very well on ITV. And um, 
He did so well that Paul went and left and joined Channel 4. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember that. <laughs> so do I. <laughs> I remember you telling me about the phone call you got as you got off a train from Manchester to say that. That's exactly what happened. Yeah. Yeah. And look, uh, you know, uh, uh, look, no problem at all. I mean, you know, talent should go where talent wants to go. And it's very important that. I realised a long time ago, and you're, I think you'll appreciate this, having worked with lots and lots of, you know, big name talent. Talent's loyal only to itself, in truth. Hmm. You know, not loyal to producers or production companies or networks. Talent, quite rightly, should go where the best projects are, where the best opportunities for them for them lie. Sure, and that's exactly how it should be. I think you produced Lily Live, which was a kind of follow-on from Lily at the Hippodrome. But Lily yeah. Live are two words which probably would send shivers of cold fear down the spines of any controller of entertainment or indeed <laughs> producer. The prospect of Lily Savage live on ITV at nine o'clock on a Friday night. Crazy. That, that was a leap of faith. <laughs> yeah, but it was a leap of faith, wasn't it? Uh, and again, it wasn't mine. Um, I was handed that show and... Uh, how that happened was that um, Wahid Ali had just joined Carlton as a director of content and Wahid had, had a very good relationship with, with Paul O'Grady, having brought Paul into the big breakfast at Planet 24, which Wahid had run along with Charlie Parsons. Uh, had a great relationship with Paul, managed to do an incredible deal, which brought Paul to ITV, gave him... Um, a primetime variety show in Lily Live and uh, some travelogue documentary shows as well. Um, I think Paul O'Grady and, I mean, you know Paul as, as, as well as I do. He, Paul, is, Paul is touched with genius. He is an incredible artist who has not only an extraordinary talent in himself, but a real appreciation and an understanding of the legacy and hinterland of performance and show business and variety and, you know, embraces all of that combined with an incredible comedic mind, so quick-witted, um, but also innately in intelligent and warm and great company. Um, so the idea of Lily Live on a, on a, 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 as a nine o'clock show, I mean, nine o'clock means that you're after the watershed, so, you know, there is a degree of license about what you can say and do at that time. But no, it was always, uh, it was always a risky show. Um, Paul used to open the show with, uh, Lily rather, used to open the show with a, with a topical monologue at the beginning. And Sue Andrew was the producer, I was the executive producer, and we would never see the script for this monologue. <laughs> Every week it would get slightly later. You know, we, the show used to be live on on Friday night, we also did a second season, I think it was live on Saturday night, but on, we were Friday night to begin with. And, you know, we'd asked to see it, you know, close of play Thursday, how's the monologue coming along? And Paul would always, he would, he would engage a group of writers, but ultimately the phone call would come through. All of, the, all of what the writers have proposed is, is wrong. I'm going to have to write it myself. That was a kind of weekly ritual we went through. Yes. And... Um, you wouldn't, you know, get to Friday lunchtime, any sign of the monologue. No, Paul's still working on the monologue. The show was live at nine o'clock. We do the, the dress run and everything. Still no sign of the monologue. We get to about <laughs> 20 to nine. 
20 minutes before we're live on the air across the ITV network nationally. Um, I have a compliance officer from the network sitting alongside me who's keen to know exactly what's in the monologue so that we can make sure it's legally sound and doesn't <laughs> present any problems. And sometimes at about 10 to 9, maybe nine minutes to nine, a sheet of paper, a crumpled sheet of paper <laughs> covered in, in pencil jottings would appear. And this would be the monologue as it was being entered into the auto queue. And we'd have to kind of work out what it was he was going to say. Quite often we used to go into the live show without really knowing what Paul was going to say. But as I alluded to earlier, he's a very, very intelligent artist. He knows exactly where the line is. And uh, he will push very, very close to it at times. And that's what makes him exciting and dangerous and fascinating to watch. Um, but he knows what the line is. Exactly. Yeah. So although we were always slightly nervous about it, ultimately, you know, you knew that Paul would not let you down. Uh, the worst, the worst, the most nerve-wracking experience I had on that show, just as a, as a side note, was um, we had a bomb threat one week. The show was live at nine o'clock and uh, on a Friday we had uh, the audience was in and the warm-up was underway. It was about quarter to nine and I'm standing just outside the, uh, the production gallery. This is about three weeks after 9-11. Mm -hmm. Everybody's quite tense about all that anyway. And uh, I see... Um, Three, three of the uh, London studio security guards come towards me with a police officer. And they asked to speak speak to me, so we had a chat. They said, we've received a threat. We're not sure if it's credible or not. We've just taken this phone call. Um, there are no code words involved, but um, it's a direct threat against the studio. What do you want to do? And that's a huge moment for anybody. Uh, I've got a live audience sitting there, 500 people in the studio, artists ready to go on, full crew ready to work. Uh, and obviously, you know, six million people watching at home. Do you pull the show 15 minutes before the air? Um, I spoke with Brendan Murphy, who was Paul's manager and co-executive producing the show with me. And I just said, what do we do? He said, well, we don't tell Paul, first of all. He said, we do the show. The show must go on. I'll tell you, Colin, that was the longest hour and 15 minutes of my life. Because wow. we're watching the show almost in slow motion, thinking what could just happen. Yes. I think it was the right decision to make. Yeah. I guess you can't, you're giving the show the fullest attention that you could give it, but your peripheral thoughts are what if, what if. Exactly. A yeah, sort of Damocles hanging over your head. Very hard to concentrate on that one. <laughs> You mentioned Sue Andrew, who is a, mm. a, a terrific producer. You've always, I, I wouldn't bracket myself in this list, but you've always been a great supporter of new talent, brought on people you have, you believe have potential within the industry uh, and oh, yeah. are not fulfilling their potential, like Sue, putting Sue Andrew, who was a damn good producer at the BBC, into an executive role. Yes, yes, she was my uh, number two at um, Carlton. Yeah. And I would con I would contend, and this is my monthly flag wave for autocue operators, for whom, you know, I have the utmost regard. Our autocue operator on Today with Desimel was Liz, Liz Hughes. Yes. And she knew that show better than me and certainly better than some of the producers. And she would say to me Absolutely. with three minutes to go, do you really want him to say that? And if Liz said... Do you want him to say that? You've got to look at it again, you know, because sum it's up. 
And subsequently, her career has developed. So she has worked as a now as a producer. For Very you. experienced producer, absolutely. And you're quite right. She. She has a, a, a very, very acute understanding of the nuances of the production process. And it's just those years of being at the cold face, isn't it? And, mm. you know, hours and hours and hours of live shows. And I do think, and I've heard you talk about this previously, the um, autocue operators are probably the, the unsung heroes and heroines of television. I mean, uh, they hold the whole thing together in a way yeah. that many, many... <laughs> directors don't really appreciate i think no they, they've certainly saved my hide and i and I, i'm bound to say possibly yours oh, on yeah. many an occasion i mean really i, th I think penny swigan at the helm of the prompt on strictly come dancing I, th I would imagine that show i imagine hinges largely on her skill absolutely and so many live shows it's one of those roles it's an it's, it's, it's a, you're quite right but but i think to your earlier point, I think I've always tried to spot talent on the production side and give give great people opportunities, really. I'm, I'm not remotely... I've never felt threatened by having good people around me. I, my, I've always regarded my job as to find the best possible people I am. I, I can to surround, surround me with. And, um, you know, the show is the important thing. It's, you know, you put aside your own egos and all the rest of it. You, it's, it's what is best for the show has to ultimately be the, 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 um, the, the, the reason that you do things. And I, I would imagine that's, speaking as I find out, that must be tough as a controller because if you're thinking in terms of the show, you have to put your personal prejudices aside. You might not like this particular artist as a performer, but if mm. you know that he or she is going to deliver your ratings, I guess you put aside any animos you have towards them. Yes, I think that's certainly what you aspire to do. Whether <laughs> one always tries to... Whether one always succeeds is another point. But, uh, I mean, look, I always... I, I tried to get on with the people I was working with, tried to find, uh, even with the most difficult and demanding art of artists, tried to find, you know, a, a point of contact or a point where you could relate to each other. I think, I think artists, um, I think artists get a reputation for being difficult when what we mean is they have very high professional standards. They want things to be, as good as they possibly can be, and they will push those around them to get that. Um, that that sometimes gives you a label of being difficult. You know, if an artist isn't interested in, in the show or, you know, is folding it in, those are the artists I'm least interested in. Give me somebody who's difficult, who is going to deliver something incredible and who cares passionately about the show over somebody that's, you know, doing it as a bankrate. And those are the people that have great longevity in their television Absolutely. careers. Spinning back, I think now to 1990, when we f 1990 when we first met on was it? It was the 9th of December 1990. Oh, it's such a, a foul day in your memory. It's engraved, <laughs> a, a day of infamy. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> that was the day you and I properly first met. That's right. Was that was that was? I Corrie, can tell you the it? location. Yes, we were in the corridor behind the sound dubbing suites at Granada <laughs> Television in Key Street in Manchester, about six o'clock on the evening of Sunday, the 9th of December. Gosh. Happy birthday, Coronation <laughs> Street. 
That's exactly what it was. It, this was a. It was the 30th anniversary of Coronation Street, and Granada Television had put on a kind of gala show hosted by Cilla Black, celebrating this milestone in television. And uh, you were the writer on the show, and I was a researcher. And I, I remember the show was taped on what was. The, I think the coldest day in 50 years. Yes, yes. You taped it on the Saturday night and there had been a colossal blizzard the <laughs> night before. And we had all these huge items set up on Coronation Street, you know, great dance numbers and all the rest of it, huge, you know, cranes and cameras everywhere, <laughs> all of which had to be aborted. <laughs> yes, because no one could step outside into these Arctic conditions it's and actually onto the street. Great. It was so cold. And, yes, and pouring with rain on the actual night, as I remember. Yeah. Freezing rain. Yes, absolutely. Um, yes. Um, but the real problem on the show, as I recall, where we first bonded, was there was a tremendous problem with the sound dub on the show. If, um, if I remember right, because the show was taped on the Saturday evening and then it aired on the Sunday evening. Hmm. And it was edited and post-produced overnight. And one of the jobs that we do in post-production is what they call audio dubbing the sound, which is making the sound ready for transmission. So flattening out any kinks in the sound, replacing any um, any missing sound and so on. And there was a wonderful sound uh, supervisor on that show called John Graham, as I remember. Mm. And we had a, there was a colossal problem because we had a remote item from Wembley Arena with Cliff Richard, who had been number one at the time of Coronation Street's first transmission. And so we booked him to perform the song that was number one that night. And he was in concert in Wembley Arena. And um, the sound had come up the line to us in Manchester and was completely out of sync with the picture. And dear old John Graham, with less than an hour to go before transmission, could not get this damn thing to sync up at all. And it got very, very tense in the dubbing theatre. And I think you and I stepped out. Yes, that's <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> Stepped out quietly thinking, well, this is not much to do with us, really. Should we let them yeah, go? This is nothing for us. <laughs> nothing for us here, Cole. Should we leave at this point and let the grown-ups sort this out? Yeah. But no, but that seriously, that was the beginning of our of our, our relationship, which, uh, I, I mean, you, you alluded to our professional times together and we've worked on many, many shows together, uh, some of which don't appear on our resumes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but also the beginning of a... Of a decades-long friendship for which i'm extremely grateful so thank you for that i would contend also that our great mutual friend peter Gwynne was also a researcher on that particular cory show he certainly was this peter... is the man who is now the executive producer of university challenge isn't it fantastic and who'd have thought extraordinary i love i who'd love the thought i love the man dearly <laughs> Peter and I, our principal role on that show, we were the two researchers on the programme. Our duties largely extended, once we got the show prepared and everything, to making sure that the host, Miss Cilla Black, had everything that she required. Oh. Uh, she, she, part of her contractual requirements was that she, she didn't like any of the dressing rooms at Granada. So a Winnebago, which is a kind of... What is a Winnebago? It's a large... RVs, it's a caravan. Big old caravan. Uh, that, yeah. that you see on film sets. Um, a, 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 a Winnebago had been parked outside the stage door at Granada Television. And uh, this was Miss Black's base for the two days that we were working on the show. Peter and I, I do remember bonding with Peter, who became perhaps my closest friend. We, we bonded when we were both scraping up cheesy nibbles that Scylla had 
inadvertently <laughs> trotted into the carpet of this Winnebago. Worked out that between us, we had seven years of higher education between us <laughs> for the right to perform this task. <laughs> at your time then at Granada, scrunching up crisps and snacks from Scylla's carpet in the Winnie, you wound up as a producer at Granada, producing one of the highest rated shows uh, on the ITV network and sh in the schedules, which was You've Been Framed with Jeremy Breedle. Yes, yes, that's right. How big a leap is it from being a researcher to actually having the responsibility of being a producer? It is a leap, yes. Um, I have to say, I, I mean, this sounds like I'm blowing my own trumpet. Uh, I was made a producer the day before my 25th birthday. And I think it was probably, I think that was quite unusual to be a producer that early. Uh, and I was um, probably not quite ready for it in truth. Mm. But Granada Television at that time had an incredible tendency to um, give give young people incredible opportunities. And uh, in the entertainment department, um, the, the, the entertainment department was run by a guy called David Lidemont, who went on to become the network director of, of, of television at ITV some years later, a very significant and important figure in television in this country. Mm. David was running the entertainment department. I always got on very, very well with David. And he, he basically took me from being a researcher to making me a producer. Most companies didn't do that. There was an intermediate stage called associate producer, mm. uh, where you were kind of lead researcher, effectively. You used to lead the research team uh, before becoming a producer. Um, but um, no, he gave me, uh, him and uh, Brian Park, who was, um, Brian was the head of entertainment at the time, subsequently became the producer of Coronation Street. But Brian really believed in me, gave me this opportunity. I started off, my first couple of um, producing jobs were on uh, regional entertainment shows produced in the Granada region. One of which, um, actually we, we discovered Carolina Hearn, um, who was very, very big in the Manchester area at that time. Mm. And John Thompson and Steve Coogan, those kind of people were around at that time. But then I got, but then I got um, the job producing You've Been Framed, which, um, you're quite right, was one of the, well, at the time, it was the number one entertainment show on British television. I mean, it was absolutely red hot. I took a huge risk um, by changing the set and slightly tweaking the format of the show. Uh, I realised when we'd done some research on the programme that a lot of our huge audience was kids. And so I said to Jeremy, I said, I think we should play more to that and not make the show childish, but mm. just make it fun, make it funnier. Let's not use those links to just say, you know, if you thought that was funny, take a look at this. Let's let's put a bit of business into that. Beadle was completely up for that. I have to say Jeremy Beadle was somebody who whose public image was almost completely the opposite of what he was like in private. He was, the public had this image of, of Jeremy as, you know, always looking to catch people out, bit 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 sneaky, yeah. uh, not particularly likable. The opposite was, was the truth. Uh, yeah. A more generous, warmer, more engaging person you could you couldn't ever wish to meet. He was such an interesting, fascinating guy. A very well-read man. I mean, I used to go to his house where he used to write the show and uh, he used to have the li this li incredible library of like 20,000 books. 
and um you know he, he could talk about anything with real knowledge and um i miss him very much jeremy he was he was a wonderful friend and a terrific terrific um had a terrific production mind uh, mm. as, as well as being a great presenter yeah he knew instinctively what worked didn't he and and what a remarkable character he was i, I liked the man enormously i didn't know him as well as you but we were at a big dinner table somewhere i won't bore you with the details and i didn't know him but he was sitting opposite and i happened to mention something and he stood up and he said you're married to Catherine randall and i said yeah oh i love that girl and he remembered that in his very very junior days working in television on a show called jigsaw that well, Catherine had been the production assistant working with clive doig but he remembered Catherine. Yeah. Uh, I want to say 15, 20 years later. And I thought, wow, that's the measure of a marvellous man. He was such a lovely, lovely man. And uh, I mean, interestingly, you know, he came up through the production route. I mean, he only ended up on television kind of as an accident, really. He was a researcher and, um, you know, it was when they were looking for a cast for um, Game for a Laugh. Mm. They couldn't find anyone to do the role that he took. And um, yes. Alan Boyd, the producer, says, go on, Beatle, you have a go. Yeah. And, um, fantastic. And, and uh, there is a letter in the Monkhouse archive from Jeremy Beadle, who is an archival researcher, writing to Bob saying, if there are any opportunities in television as a researcher that you could find for me, I would be very grateful. This is my CV of books I've written. And that, wow, that's, that's some yeah. significant history sitting in the, in the Monkhouse Archive. He was very interested in everything. That was the great thing about him. And uh, and he, uh, you're quite right. He was he would take time out to talk to the most junior members of the production team. And on You've Been Framed, we had this team of about 12, they weren't even researchers, we used to call them viewers. And they, uh, they literally just sat in this room for 12 hours a day looking at VHS tapes that the public had sent in. I mean, mm. it was an absolutely thankless task, but... Um, a great way into television as your first job and Jeremy used to spend hours with those kids talking about them and just this, this you could hear this wonderful laughter from him mm. coming from that room uh he took real joy in the program and he he taught me a lot of things as well I mean we he used to have this thing on you've been framed that um you know obviously a lot of the clips are people falling over and he always said that if a child falls over we must see them get up at the end so that we know the child's okay that's very interesting, yes. And that it was it was things like that that you know you'd never have thought of that. Mm. But that's that was the that was what he was like. That was the mark of a, a great man, I think, with a yeah. great instinct for entertainment. Absolutely. Then you moved from Granada to the BBC, where, I did. <laughs> uh, amongst other shows, so good shows as well. I, mean, I remember vividly Steve Wright's uh, evening chat show, which I thought was fantastic. Cause yeah, it was a fun show, yeah. On, on, because you were getting guests like Gillian Anderson, who was the hottest ticket in the X-Files at the time. Yes. I remember that. Not a great vividly. conversationist, as I recall. But... I, I remember that as well. But the fact that you had Gillian Anderson was good enough for me. Thank you very much. Yes. But yes. then you got the opportunity to produce uh, Top of the Pops, yes. which... Must have been a hell of a responsibility because Top of the Pops was at that time part of the fabric of the nation. It was. And God, what a thrill to be asked to do it. Um, it kind of fell into my lap, really, slightly by accident. Um, I was in the entertainment department. I'd just done Children in Need. I'd just um, 
produced the Children in Need telethon. Which mm, was, I remember. Yeah, big, big show, obviously, to do. Um, I got a call one day saying, you know, Rick Blacksill, the current producer, has just, just announced he was leaving. Would I just like to look after Top of the Pops for, for a bit? I ended up doing it for six months. And, um, yeah, what a thrill to, to be asked to produce a show that you've watched, you know, some of your earliest memories as a viewer watching as a kid, you mm. know. Thursday night, half past seven, you know, that music. And uh, what a thrill to be asked to do it. Um, I loved it. I mean, I, I did it for six months, as I said. It was one of those gigs where you you pinch yourself sometimes that, my goodness me, I'm sitting doing Top of the Pops and uh. here's David Bowie, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I remember we had David Bowie on the show and uh, uh, he came in and we were told, Mr. Bowie's going to do one take, so make sure you guys get it, okay? So... We did this performance and it was not great. I think we weren't very good, you know, a couple of miscues perhaps on the cameras. Um, he wasn't that good in truth. It was, you could just see he wasn't quite sure about all this. Uh, anyway, gets to the end. Okay, everybody, thank you very much. You know, David Bowie starts leaving the stage and I just, I took a beat and I thought, I'm going to ask him to do this again because... I think he knows that he can be better and we certainly can be better. So I went flying out of the gallery, down the stairs to the to the floor of the studio. And I, I just went straight up to him and I said, David, uh, I'm the producer. Thank you so much. Uh, would you like to do that again? Because we could certainly benefit from another take if, if, if you wouldn't mind doing it again. Look me straight in the eye. Yep, no problem at all. Quite often it's the case, isn't it? You'll know this, that... But if you can get to the artist directly, the artists are good as gold. The problem is the entourages and all those people around them second guessing them all the time. Yeah. These artists are at that level because they know it has to be right. Yeah. They know if it needs another take to get it better, then we'll do another take to get it better. For sure. Uh, so, so that was a that was that was on top of the pops. But it was it was a. Do you know what it was a? It was it was the kind of thing. At that time, the Top of the Pops producer had tremendous power within the music industry. I mean, it was still a big deal to get onto the show. Uh, we used to have this, all the record companies had pluggers who were very, very keen to get their artists to, to, to get onto Top of the Pops. So you'd spend the whole week being lobbied by these pluggers who would come and see you and say, you know, this artist is available and so on. I remember one plugger was a gentleman by the name of Simon Cowell. I don't know whatever happened to him. <laughs> but um, so that you'd spend your week listening to these pluggers and they were great. They, they were all good, enthusiastic people, you know, lobbying hard for their artists. And then you'd have to, then you'd get the chart, uh, which used to, I mean, this is how long ago, it was faxed to you at home on a, on a Sunday evening, the chart for the following week. And you'd have to, um, you then decide what artists you'd want on the show. Mm. And, uh, and, all the pluggers used to come into a big meeting on Monday morning in which you would read the list of the artists that had made it onto that Thursday's show, which was taped on a Wednesday evening. And then, um, uh, and that was it. So there wasn't a lot to do as producer in truth. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why I was, I was called to leave after six months. Um, it was one of those jobs that, you know, you, once you'd made that decision, <laughs> you booked those bands and then you recorded the show. That was it really. Mm. Doesn't doesn't stretch you creatively as a producer. But after Top of the Pops, uh, I, guess, I guess your tenure at Top of the Pop was rather truncated by the fact that the National Lottery Live came a beckoning, and the idea of a twenty-minute 
variety show, which I think was your conception, uh, hosted by Bob Monkhouse. National Lottery, uh, yeah, 20 minutes on Saturday nights, the highest rating show on television at the time. Um, you know, we all used to tune in just to see those numbers, didn't we? And that was, that was my challenge as producer, was to make the show more than just that 30 seconds of the draw itself. And I remember, I mean, you know, it was fantastic that I got to work with Bob Monkhouse. When I, got, when I, when I inherited the show, the host was Anthea Turner. And um, Anthea was own, I mean, she was a, a wonderful presenter, but she wasn't an entertainer. And um, I thought the show was best in the hands of an entertainer. So when Anthea left and the discussion started about, well, who shall we have now? I remember saying to Mike Lego, the head of entertainment at the BBC at the time, for goodness sake, let's have some entertainers hosting who can really make this into a show rather than, you know, rather than a programme. The difference mm. between a programme and a show, I think. It was great working with Bob because, you know, you and you, you and uh, and others involved in the production we were all very very keen to make this into a into a 20 minute variety show and uh and bob used to do this fantastic opening monologue every week you know topical monologue mm. and it was terrific wonderful opportunity and and i suppose you had the budget really to throw at a script because it, with help from me uh, we also had rob colley supplying yeah. topicals who's one of the foremost comedy writers still in this country yes. the late the late and the wonderful debbie barham and yes. also you were buying in material from people who were submitting material on spec and presenting right. it to bob to consider for inclusion in the monologue which we then cobbled together on, on this on the saturday afternoon and how wonderful was it just to sit in those meetings quite often just the three of us and just watch bob work his way through some of that submitted material stuff that had come in on that morning oh. just to see if there was a nugget of a joke there from somebody or uh, i mean it was just incredible i think just to watch him critiquing those submissions yes i remember he used to say <laughs> quite often he would say well it's like a joke <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yes, I remember he he said uh, frequently of my stuff. It, it glistens with sweat, but it doesn't sing because <laughs> he could pre appreciate the ingenuity, but the, the 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 comedy quotient was somewhat lacking within the cleverness of the joke. But again, you know, the fact that he cared so passionately about it and wanted it to be better than it needed to be—that mm. was the mark of Monkhouse, I think, and even at that point in his career, and, you know, he was, what, five or six decades into a fantastic career by that point, he still wanted to put the hours in and wanted to make it work as, as well as he possibly could. Yes. That, I think, is the mark of a true professional artist. I agree. He said on one occasion, which surprised me because I'd known him for a very long time, as you know, he said, can we just make sure the autocue's up and running? Because he said... I'm nervous enough as I walk down. I thought, wow. Yeah. Bob Monkhouse admitting he's nervous enough on a live Saturday night show. Because I, I, the autocue had technically failed on two occasions. I remember one of them very clearly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he managed with consummate skill, the, the skill of a seasoned comedian yes. to perform in an entertaining manner without autocue. And that goes back to what I was saying earlier about the difference between having a presenter and having an entertainer on that show. Um, in the event of autocue going down, you know that Monkhouse has got decades of experience and a hinterland of comedic material just to draw on. Sure. And that whatever happens, 
you're in safe hands. And I think, I think from a viewer's point of view, the worst thing you can be as a presenter is somebody that makes the audience nervous. Hmm. If you're nervous on, the, on the, the behalf of the presenter, you know that's that's not a that's not a edifying experience as a viewer. Mm. You want to you want to be in safe hands, I think. Yes. How heavy was the weight on your shoulders when the man who was in charge of Carlton Television called you up, brought you into a meeting, and said, "I want you to become head of Carlton TV Entertainment"? Because <laughs> you were going from a budget yes. of what three million quid for a, for a show to sixty million quid for a, a whole department. Yes. Well, um, after I'd done Top of the Pops, um, I went to LWT for a couple of years. Uh, Nigel Lithgow asked me to go and join the department there. That's where you and I worked together on shows like Don't Try This at Home and Tarrant on TV and Kids Say the Funniest Things with Michael Barrymore. And that was a wonderful experience. I loved working in that department. It was was where I started my television career in 1989. And LWT, you know, it was, you know, of a certain um, age, will remember that that LWT was entertainment. It was the place to be if you were interested in television entertainment. It had mm. the biggest shows, the biggest stars, the best producers, and so to be invited to go there was just wonderful. And I loved every minute of it. So I was, you know, very very happy then. And out of the blue comes this com- this phone call from. Um, Steve Hewlett, who uh, is no longer with us, sadly, but Steve, Steve um, was the director of programs at Carlton at that time. He'd been brought in uh, fairly recently before there and before then, and um, he wanted to make some changes within the company. He felt that in entertainment, Carlton was kind of punching below its weight, which I think was probably true. Uh, quite a small department at that time just a couple of shows really and um one of which was family fortunes and um he asked me if i'd be interested in going to be controller of entertainment and of course once you've once somebody said that to you it kind of can't be unsaid so even if i'd said no i'd have spent the rest of my life thinking i wonder what would have happened if i'd taken that job you know mm. it was a huge it was slightly like being made producer a bit early to be honest because uh, again you know i was still quite young at that point um, I was in my thirties still. It was a it was a big responsibility. But on the other hand, kind of the only way was up for the department at that point. And mm. I knew I could. I knew I had a very very good relationship with Claudia Rosencrantz, who was the network controller of entertainment at that time. I mean, she and I had gone back many many years. She was was instrumental in giving me my very first job in television. And um, I knew Claudia well. We both had we both respected each other, and uh, I thought that with her help and encouragement, we would get new stuff away. So, yeah. So, so going to Carlton, my my job was to to, to bring in some business. Really, um, first show I did there was a did a big show with Tina Turner. Really, to kind of quite deliberate on my part to kind of plant a kind of flag in the sand really saying you know we're here now we're serious about entertainment so I, it was tina's 60th birthday that year and i approached emi and said we should do a big special to mark this big saturday night show so they asked tina she was up for it and we did a really big very high budget show went way over budget <laughs> which i mm. thought might might have got me the sack straight away but <laughs> fortunately i still seem to be in a bit of a honeymoon period at that stage so um that that was, but that was good because it showed that we were serious about entertainment. 
I remember walking into BBC Television Centre, which is where I th I'm pretty sure that's where you staged and set the yes, that's right. using yeah. using television centre facilities that's right. for an ITV show. I remember walking into Television Centre and smelling, oh, I don't know, what's that? There's, <laughs> there's oil and the smell of metal everywhere. And I bumped yes. into you and I said, and you said, she's, you said, that's our set. <laughs> Because you were building this great metallic edifice. Yes. For Tina. Yes. I had, I, I do, it was a very, very odd thing. We had a wonderful designer called Bill Laslett, who decided to more or less build the Thunderdome from Mad Max in Studio <laughs> One at Television Centre. And I do remember turning up uh, at Television Centre, and you're quite right, the, 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 it, it was like an oil rig was being constructed. Yes. There was, I opened the doors, there was welding, sparks flying everywhere. <laughs> That, that you're quite right, as an industrial smell yes. pervaded the set. Yes. This colossal construction underway. Um, the show was directed by a wonderful, legendary director called David Mallet, um, who Tina wanted to direct it. I'd never worked with David until that point, although he was directing the Brit Awards, which I also took responsibility for later. Um, David was a wonderful, wonderful character. I mean, a legendary director. He'd done a lot of those big, iconic pop videos during the 80s and 90s. Mm. Um, but he was, you know, also had a bit of a, how can I put this? But, you know, a bit, bit of a reputation for eccentricity, perhaps is the politest way of putting mm. it. And I remember walking in and he'd managed to convince me that this show needed 35 cameras to cover it. A normal show of this type would probably run to eight, maybe nine. Yes. So we had 35. And the moment I walked into the gallery, Mark, I'm so glad you're here. I think I need an extra camera. <laughs> so we were up to 36. I slightly took the view, well, you know, what's another 500 pounds on the overspend here? <laughs> Utterly ignoring the fact that the Vision Mixer only has 10 fingers. Quite. <laughs> you mentioned the Brits. Now, they yes. were, that was an annual production which was, I would have thought, always fraught with danger. You were always <laughs> courting disaster. Yes. And, fre and frequent, frequently encountered danger, I think. Do you know, I, I was executive producer for ITU for the Brits for 10 years, and I don't think there was a single show in that 10 years when there wasn't an incident of some kind. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, the thing about the Brits is it's a show that is put on by the music industry, deliberately timed within the year to be in the first quarter of the year so that it is a boost to post-Christmas record sales. It's the quietest part of the part of the year in terms of sales so the bpi the british phonographic industry which is the body that represents the record companies deliberately put it on in that um in, in that window in the first three months of the year uh, and the thing to remember about it is it's um it's prince it is an award show of course but it's also a marketing tool it's a marketing tool for the for the music industry so you know the bpi own and run the show um i was there as executive producer for for ITV, for the network, to to try <laughs> to try and remind them that this was going on television, <laughs> and that we were paying for quite a large proportion of the show, and that um, you know, can mm. we can, can we please make sure that the show is attractive to viewers of ITV at eight o'clock on a Tuesday evening or whatever? Mm. It was um, it's a it's a massive massive beast of a show. Uh, 
I was incredibly fortunate to work with some amazing directors and producers on that show. I mean, Helen Terry was the producer for a long time when I was working on it. She, you may remember, had a background as a musician herself, mm. um, most prominently working with Culture Club. Um, but also um, a director called Hamish Hamilton, who was still kind of up and coming at that stage, but you know, very, very much a rising star. Um, Hamish went on to produce the Academy Awards in Hollywood and the halftime show at the Super Bowl and, and perhaps most famously the opening ceremony of the um, of the London Olympics, but, but an incredible director who worked really hard to push, to push the Brits to be a really fantastic place for artists to perform. So, you know, we could get artists like you 2 and, um, you know... Uh, Prince and McCartney and those kind of names would come and mm. close the show and mm. uh yeah and that was always fantastic but it was a difficult show to do there's no question about it I mean uh, for my the first few years that I was doing it we did it on tape and it was taped one it was taped the night before transmission and we used mm. to edit it through the night and again I mean I remember one year we had um you know, we were we were transmitting the show. Part five was just coming off the air, and part six had not been finished in the dubbing suite. And, you know, it was that kind of broadcast news moment of somebody running down the corridor with the tape to load it into the machine, just as the final commercial of the commercial break comes off the air. And it was that genuinely happened. So it was, um, it was tight. It was tight as that. That's extraordinary. Yeah. Then we took the decision to take it live, to do it live. And again, that brought with it a whole new slew of problems. <laughs> Not least of which is, of course, you know, pop music, uh, alcohol, oh. <laughs> playing to the audience and so on. You know, you're going to get people it, using bad language and so on. So, it's a chemical you know, reaction, isn't it? It is. It absolutely is. So we, um, we introduced a delay, a seven-second delay on the transmission. And... Uh, we engaged somebody to sit in the in the scanner in the um, the, the outside broadcast vehicle um, on the what we known as what was known as the F button, which was literally a button that you pressed <laughs> to to knock the sound off the transmission whenever somebody used uh, an inappropriate word. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> but uh, honestly, Colin, it was one of those again one of those gigs where you pinch yourself because you know you're sitting standing in the arena very very close to massive artists performing at their at the top of their game i remember the dress run the year that prince closed the show um you know just standing watching prince doing this incredible incredible you know guitar solo that you know this riff that went on for like 20 minutes and he just wanted to play mm -hmm. and the audience the, the crew were just in absolute silence just transfixed by this performance mm -hmm. um you know we had a similar situation you know, when we had Amy Winehouse, um, her performance on the night was brilliant, but her, her dress rehearsal was, was amazing. You know, mm. it was it, you genuinely felt so privileged to be in that position for those kind of moments. Really, Yes. I think when you hit a certain level in the entertainment industry, you find yourself. And I'm constantly aware of this now. If you shake hands with someone, for example, if you shake your hand, you're shaking hands with the person that shook hands with Prince. <laughs> you know, one degree of separation, literally. That's also the case, though, when you got to produce Michael Parkinson. Michael yes. had left the BBC, taken a little hiatus, and then I guess yourself or somebody induced him uh, with one, one incentive or another to come and revive the show on ITV. 
yeah, I mean, that was an incredible privilege to work with Michael Parkinson. Again, you know, somebody who I've been watching since childhood. Mm. I always associated the, um, it's funny, this never went away. I always associated hearing that theme tune with the smell of, do you remember that shampoo that you could get in the 70s called Vosine? Mm, yeah. It's like a strong medicated shampoo. Well, my mum mm. always used to wash my hair on Saturday nights. And then after that, I watched the Parkinson show. So I always associated that, that theme tune with that smell. Yeah, it's, it's never went away. But no, working with Parky was 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 wonderful. It was, again, um, I can take no credit at all for luring him to ITV. That was the work of um, Nigel Picard. Though um, I, I don't think Michael knows this, but the 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 kind of surreptitious negotiations and the workings behind the scenes to get him to join the network were known internally as Project Emu, which only a, <laughs> a few people had access to. But yeah, I mean, it was 2004 uh, we started that show. Um, I felt that the show at the BBC was good, but could have been better. Uh, Particularly the way it looked, I thought we could make a big upgrade on it. I wanted to make it feel like a big Saturday night event. And in truth, at the BBC, it felt a little bit small. Mm. So we put it in the biggest studio we had at... um, the London Studios put an audience of 500 in there for every taping and did a big set and made it, you know, spent a lot on the lighting and all the rest of it. And yes. made it feel like a big, important, chunky show, really. And that first show was, um, well, we had Tom Cruise, Billy Connolly and Kelly Holmes, as I remember, who had only won her two gold medals at the Olympics the previous week. So mm. it was a very timely booking. And, um, yeah, we were off and running and uh, yeah. had a great run on it. The, probably the most memorable night we had on that show was when Madonna guested and we did a one hour special with Madonna. And it was that period where she was spending a lot of time in England, living here most of the time. And she absolutely loved Parky and was quite flirtatious with him on the show, which was brilliant. Mm-hmm. And uh, the atmosphere in the studio that night was just electric. You know, mm. it's it's a kind of indefinable thing, isn't it? Sometimes everything's right, and the audience was the, the sense of anticipation in that audience and the energy in the air. It was it was magic in that studio that night. It was, mm. it was wonderful and uh, very a great interview he did with her. We used to argue and discuss those guest combinations for hours, making sure that the combination of the three guests was right because it was, you know, quite often you'd get three good names, but you weren't sure how they would get on with each other Mm. and what the three-way conversation between them was going to be like. So that, that for me was always as important as getting a big name. It was how good is the conversation going to be? The show was very, very much. And people say, you know, it's it's a chat show. Yeah it's easy to dismiss it with that kind of work it's a it was absolutely about conversation it was about deep good conversation sometimes funny sometimes moving and uh, and always with a kind of journal with michael's journalistic instinct kind of mm. front and center um but i do think there's nothing like it on british television or indeed anywhere really now uh you, you know i think there are some great talk shows on television but they're shows that are all geared towards comedy Mm. Uh, and getting a laugh, or in the case of Piers Morgan, in you know very very tightly edited conversation, touching mm. emotional um, mm. points. But the Parkinson show was quite unique in that it, it it was about the quality of conversation. 
And he had such a journalistic ear because he actually listened to the answers and reacted yeah. to the answers, still does. And I mean, he was absolutely superb at that. And his instinct to listen, um, his instinct to pick up on something that somebody said or reference back something that had been mentioned earlier was was, was excellent, you know. And um, that's years of, that not only... It, you know, an incredible journalistic mind that he had, but also just years of doing it and doing mm. it well. Yeah. Um, extraordinary. And once again, you're, you're in the company of someone who's shaking hands with, oh gosh, Gene Kelly. Yes, in exactly. Crosby. It's, it's a strange kaleidoscope trying to drag it into focus of, of yes. extraordinary people that he's met, you've met, and, and the people that you and I have worked with over the years have met that That's one right. degree of separation. I was very keen to make sure as well, though, that the show stayed modern. Uh, and I think I had one big falling out with Michael while we were working together, and it was over the booking of guests. And it, I won't say the names, but he wanted a, he wanted one guest, and I wanted somebody completely different for this one guest spot that was outstanding. And I got the I, I said to him, "Look, you know, it's my job to really push you." And as your executive producer, not to agree with you all the time and to challenge you. I said, if you want somebody that just agrees with you, that's not going to be me. I, I said, you know, we're going to keep the show moving forward by having guests that are modern and relevant and that the viewers want to see now. Not, you know, I think sometimes there had been a tendency at the BBC to book, to book from quite a small list of guests that he'd been comfortable interviewing in the past. Mm. Uh, and I was always keen for him to interview people he'd never encountered previously. I mean, one of the best interviews he did with us was with Noel Gallagher, for example. Mm. Um, they got on brilliantly and Parky was so engaged on it and it was it was excellent. Mm. I sense that's not the kind of guest he'd have booked in the past. Instinctively, perhaps. yes. Yeah. Um, so that's but after we'd had that um didn't shout at each other, but voices were raised. <laughs> um, I think I think it was a mutual, a, a renewed mutual respect between us that, that he saw that I wanted the best for the show and that and, and um, you know that I would push him hard to to achieve that. And I'm really proud of those shows that we did there. I think that final show we did, um, his his final talk show uh, at ITV 2007, where we I mean the lineup was incredible: Billy Connolly, Peter Kay, mm. Michael Caine, At David Attenborough, Judy Dench, David Beckham. Um, uh, Jamie Cullum and Dame Edna. I mean, that's a stunning lineup by anybody's measure. Everyone a headliner. Yeah. yeah. Le okay, that inspires me to then spin, spin you forward, take you out of your role as controller of entertainment at ITV, and put you into your role as an independent producer, mm. head, heading up a production company. And you had the idea of pitting Joanna Lumley with Will I Am. Which yes. doesn't, on the face of it, sound like uh, an ideal marriage made in heaven. In fact, a more bizarre pairing. It's it's very hard to conceive. But that was the show you put together. Yes, yes, yes. Um, how that happened is uh, we were talking to Joanna about the idea of Joanna Lumley meets uh, that she would do kind of long form uh, documentary, uh, an hour plus with spending some significant time with somebody that she was interested in and we had the meeting with her and we were talking about you know who 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 she would like to meet and she she stunned me by saying i really like will i am 
And I thought, well, that's an interesting combination. And uh, we pitched it to the BBC, who turned it down. And I thought this was a... At the time, Will was on, um, Will was on The Voice on BBC One. And I thought, well, that's a very bizarre, bizarre, bizarre decision. So I, I, I do something I very rarely do. I kind of went out on a limb and I called um, Charlotte Moore, who was controller of BBC One at the time, and I said, look, Charlotte, I'm so sorry. Could I just have 10 minutes of your time at the end of the day just to make sure you're comfortable with the decision on this because um, I'd really just like to have a chat with you about it. She said, sure, come in. So I went in at the end of the day. I said, I think the combination of these two artists is so weird and bizarre that it'll work really well. And I said, I just have this real instinct for it. Can you please just let us have a chance with this one? And she said, okay, I like your passion. Let's try it. So uh, we did it. We spent a week with um, Will in Los Angeles. He was so wonderful with Joanna and really opened up to her and invited her, her into his world, which was, a you know, two different worlds colliding, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was very taken with him and very inquisitive about the whole thing. And it, it worked incredibly well. Yeah. It's I fun. remember it vividly because Will took her to meet his family. That's right. Yeah. Family dinner. And there's an immense warmth in that show, which uh, continuing your producing shows with great warmth, you persuade, I, th- I guess Bruce p- required no persuasion whatsoever to embark on a, a road trip with you uh, in the footsteps of his great hero, Sammy Davis Jr. In, in, a, yes. in, a, in a one-off called, uh, you'll remind me Well, it was title. for an, uh, an ITV arts strand called Perspectives, which mm. had re- ITV had um, just cancelled the South Bank show. I think we're regretting that decision. And so hastily con- hastily commissioned a series called Perspectives in which we were all as independent producers invited to pitch ideas for films for this. So I pitched the idea of Bruce, um, yeah, discovering more about his his own show business here, Sammy Davis Jr., who he knew well, and uh, and kind of digging deep into, into that archive. Um, and it turned out to be one of those films that was just an absolute joy to make. It was, um, I mean, Bruce knew about Sammy, knew a lot about Sammy, but didn't know everything. And I think was intrigued about how difficult Sammy had found it early in his career to become established. The, you know, the, the grinding years of working the vaudeville circuit in all around America at a time of segregation as well. So yeah fighting racism at every at every quarter um bruce was very moved by the whole experience it was great for me because we were celebrating an artist that i grew to become obsessive about while we were doing it uh and also uh just to spend time with bruce and just uh to talk in detail on those long car journeys when you're driving to locations and so on yes about his story and his memories and bruce was quite close to the end of his life at that point and uh it was a it was a real privilege to spend time with him in truth i mean bruce was one of the reasons i wanted went into television it was watching the generation game oh. as a kid growing up that made me think my god this looks good i'd yeah. love to be involved in something like this and it was um that was that was what inspired me in the first place so it was um, great so with your permission i'd like you to come back please uh in the not too distant couple of three weeks time and we can continue this because my laundry Very list kind. my mental laundry list of things to ask you i've still got two pages to get through really uh, yeah i really have
Well, that's very kind. I'd be delighted to. Thank you. It's been a lovely experience. That's, that's very kind. I do appreciate that. Uh, that's, a, that's a high note on which I'd, I'd like to wrap this up, please, with your permission. Sure. Uh, with enormous thanks for your time. And uh, I will speak to you in a couple of three weeks' time. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Mark. Mark Wells, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, we'll see you next week. <laughs>